This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 31, Land of Impostors. On December 13, 522 BC, Darius I lined up his army for battle against a Babylonian ghost. A son of Nabonidus, taking the name of Nebuchadnezzar III, had inflamed all of Mesopotamia into revolt against the Persians. The self-proclaimed Babylonian king had then marched his army in the footsteps of his slain brother, Belshazzar, to confront Darius at the confluence of the Tigris and Diyala. His plan was deceptively simple. Set the world to rights and put an end to the embarrassing aberration of Persian rule. Not that Persian rule had been so bad, all things considered, certainly in comparison to the hated Assyrians. But still, Zagros hill tribes, though fierce warriors, weren't historically renowned for their governing skills. Some, like the Gutians, had briefly seized local power, but in the end, unable to decipher the complicated user's manual for Babylonia, they'd either trudged off in bafflement or been driven off by more worthy native rulers. Though Persia had initially shown more promise, that had proven to be an illusion. The destruction of Cyrus's line and dubious succession of Darius were clear signs of weakness and disorder. Once again, the time had come to drive the invaders back into the mountains. 
It's a testament to this overriding belief in Mesopotamian superiority that the first land to rebel against Darius had been the adjacent and utterly diminished territory of Elam. Crushed by the great Neo-Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, then invaded, occupied, and displaced by the Achaemenid Persians themselves, if any people had gotten the short end of the historical stick, it was the Elamites. To call them even a shadow of their former selves would be high praise, yet their pride in their ancient civilization was unflagging. Bardiah's body was barely cold before a revolutionary leader named Ashina proclaimed himself the king of Elam and led his people into rebellion against the neighboring Persians. Reality had abruptly reasserted itself when Darius sent an envoy to Elam, arrested Ashina, dragged him to Ekbatana in chains, and had him summarily executed. But that, of course, was only the first shot across the bow and this latest revolt couldn't be so easily shrugged off. Cyrus the Great had captured Babylonia using a carefully calibrated mixture of power and guile, carpet-bombing the region with propaganda, then using his military in a restrained and surgical fashion to seal the bargain. But in a real sense, Cyrus hadn't really conquered Babylonia. He'd shown respect, and brought positive change, and bolstered his credentials with the blessings of local gods. Babylonian goodwill had even extended to his son, Cambyses, who'd been installed as co-ruler of Babylonia, and also sought the blessings of Marduk on the famous Cyrus Cylinder. But Bardiah... Darius? I mean, who were these guys? And what made them think that Babylon was theirs to inherit? Sensing the growing mood of indignation and defiance, a son of Nabonidus named Nadintu Bel had traded on his royal blood, if not, you know, the particulars of his father's reign, invoked the name of Babylon's greatest king, and offered himself up as a homegrown alternative to the Persians the region had quickly flocked to his banner. It was the first serious challenge to Darius's rule, and he took it head-on. Marching in the footsteps of Cyrus, the great king descended from the Zagros and approached the swollen Tigris. Crossing its raging waters proved a challenge, but Darius drove his army onward until they'd gained the opposite shore. Before them stood the Babylonian forces of Nebuchadnezzar III, emerging ghost-like from the plain. On December 13, 522 BC, the two armies met in battle. Any illusions the Babylonian usurper may have had about his sacred cause or its chances for success were instantly shattered. Like Cyrus before him, the great king thoroughly routed the Babylonian army and drove its remnants southward. Again, the defenders drew up a second line of defense north of Babylon. On December 18th, Darius delivered his enemy an even more crushing blow, with many soldiers plunging into the nearby Euphrates to avoid certain death. Nebuchadnezzar III managed to escape the carnage and, riding hard, found refuge behind the walls of Babylon. Inexorably, the Persian army followed. Babylon was superbly defensible. Nebuchadnezzar II had seen to that, with high walls, strong gates, and all manner of clever defenses. 
a siege could still be ridden out if necessary. But while the city was much as the great Chaldean ruler had left it, its citizens had undergone a subtle but significant change. For centuries, from the Bronze Age collapse to the fall of Neo-Assyria, war had been the Babylonian norm. Its main instigators had been Assyria and Elam, but powerful tribes like the Aramaeans and Chaldeans had added to the violent and chaotic mix. In contrast, ever since the reign of Nabopolassar, southern Mesopotamia had largely known peace. The main conflicts of the era had been wars of Neo-Babylonian expansion, leaving the heartland untroubled and secure. Even the initial Persian takeover had been, all things considered, a fairly bloodless affair. The near century of peace and stability had allowed enterprising Babylonians, including priests, merchants, bankers, craftsmen, and farmers, to thrive. The opportunity to plug themselves into the much larger markets of the Persian Empire had only increased their prosperity. When it came right down to it, many Babylonians had zero motivation to either provoke the Persians or endure the privations of a prolonged siege. This went double for the descendants of deportees, who despised native Babylonian rulers and still looked fondly on the Persians as their liberators. Besides, Nebuchadnezzar III had been given his chance to test his strength against the new Persian king, and been found lacking. In his failure, why should he be allowed to drag the ancient city down with him? When Darius arrived at Babylon, he found its gates open. Nebuchadnezzar III, or Nidintu Bel, was promptly handed over to the great king. Seeing no reason to change his M.O., Darius denounced the would-be king as a pretender, not even a real son of Nabonidus, and had him quickly impaled along with a number of co-conspirators. Entering the city, the great king must have been impressed. I mean, that's pretty much what Babylon was designed for. The processional way approaching the royal palace was even known as May the Arrogant Not Flourish a reminder of the transitory nature of unwanted conquerors. Darius, of course, intended to be anything but transitory, and his recapture of Babylon, still far and away the most magnificent city of the ancient world, was a promising start. Unfortunately, he wouldn't have too much time to soak it all in. He'd hardly set up shop in Babylon when royal messengers arrived with dispiriting news. Apparently less convinced than they'd let on about his creative spin on regicide, both Persia and Media were now in open revolt. The Median usurper, Freortes, claimed to be an heir of Cyaxares, the legendary king who joined with Nabopolassar to conquer Neo-Assyria. But his Persian counterpart, a noble named Vayasdata, really took things up a notch when he claimed to be wait for it, Cyrus's son, Bardia. After all, if Darius had killed a Magus imposter, then who was to say that the real Bardia couldn't still be alive? Certainly not his backers, Persian nobles who'd sided with the real Bardia during the aborted civil war between brothers. 
Of course, it went without saying that both rebel leaders were imposters and liars, at least, you know, as far as Darius was concerned. But that didn't mean that their threat was any less real. What the great king had working for him was a lack of Aryan unity. Many nobles, both Persian and Mede, still believed their fortunes were best served under a unified Persian empire ruled by Darius. Others found themselves attracted to the greater autonomy offered by local rule. These fundamental divisions were played out on the basic Aryan political unit, the clan, with each clan chief deciding which path his people would follow. Once everyone had picked their side, the contest began in earnest. The Persian usurper Vyazdata, or fake Bardaya, struck eastward into the important satrapy of Bactria, but was repulsed by a governor loyal to Darius. Freortes pushed westward, looking to enter Mesopotamia along the same path as his Persian predecessors. Darius dispatched one of his original collaborators, a noble named Hydarnes, at the head of a small army to deny him entry. In the now dead of winter, the opposing armies clashed in the foothills of the Zagros, and Hydarnes managed to hold his ground. Freortes had been bottled up, but wouldn't remain so for long. With his hold over Babylonia still tenuous, Darius remained unsure whether and where to commit the bulk of his forces. In the spring of 521 BC, the great king finally decided to push for a quick victory against Freortes and the Medes. Marching his forces to Hydarnes' camp near the sacred mountain of Behistun, Darius led the combined armies in an overwhelming assault against Freortes. The Median usurper was routed, captured, and dragged before the great king in chains. Having disposed of both Bardaya and Nebuchadnezzar III in a fairly perfunctory manner, Darius decided to relish this particular victory, one over rebellious Aryan nobles who'd only recently sworn him their loyalty. Freortes' ears, nose, and tongue were cut off, and he was blinded in one eye. He was then carted off and chained to one of the gates of Ecbatana, an object lesson for other Aryan nobles to ponder. Only after the great king believed the lesson had been learned was Freortes finally allowed to die, impaled upon a stake. The nobles who'd backed him were flayed alive, their skin stuffed with straw and hung up for all to see. I'm guessing that last one would have even earned a slow clap from the Assyrians. Alas, no rest for the king of the world. The Persian army of Vyazdata, fake Bardaya, was still at large, and the spring had also seen revolts by both the Arartians and the Parthians. The Parthian revolt was easily put down by the forces of Darius's own father, Histippus, but the other rebellions presented greater challenges, and the great king was compelled to dispatch separate armies under trusted generals to confront them. An ethnic Arartian general named Dadarsi led a Persian army to Urartu. In the end, he was forced to fight three pitched battles against the rebels during May and June of 521 BC before the region was finally pacified. At the same time, Darius sent a Persian general named Artavardaya to confront Vyazdata's forces in Persia. 
a major engagement in late May 521 BC left the Persian rebels bloody but unbowed. It took two further months of relentless campaigning before victory was finally won and the Persian leader captured. Darius must have taken perverse pleasure in killing Bardaya for a second time, impaling both him and his allies on a field of stakes. Maybe this time Cyrus's heir would finally learn his lesson and stay dead. But the Persian rebellion had also highlighted the enduring appeal of Cyrus's legend. With his usual keen eye for political advantage and tendency to go big, Darius promptly decided to marry not just a single princess, but pretty much every surviving female heir of Cyrus's line. With this step, the two royal families were welded together, and each family's supporters now owed loyalty to both. All in all, a fairly clever way to tie a bow around the whole succession crisis. Meanwhile, in the background, rebellion after rebellion continued to roil the empire. Elam, Media, and Urartu all went to a second round, along with several eastern territories, including Margiana and Satagidia. It seemed there was no shortage of liars and impostors abroad in the empire. But that was okay with Darius. He dispatched his armies, awaited word of their victories, and passed judgment on the defeated according to their crimes. He was the living instrument of Ahura Mazda, the lord of light and wisdom. Deception and lies would find no refuge on his watch. Egypt, of course, took its shot at independence under a rebel pharaoh named Pedubastus III. Darius apparently held the kingdom in high regard and put down the insurrection with minimal force. In fact, the great king went so far as to execute the current Persian satrap, a man named Ariandes, for prompting the rebellion through his heavy-handed rule. Like Cambyses before him, Darius dove deep into Egyptian culture, having himself proclaimed the pharaoh Setutre, or son of Ra, and inscribing his throne name in a royal cartouche. He also built the major temple of Hibis, dedicated to the Theban triad of Amun, Mut, and Khonshu, in the Karga Oasis, and repaired other Egyptian temples from the Nile Delta to the First Cataract. Most notably, he also completed the canal from the eastern Nile Delta to the Red Sea, begun under the pharaoh Necho II. Darius even managed to reverse Cambyses' military failures by completing the Persian conquest of coastal Libya and compelling tribute from the Nubian kings of Cush. Toward the end of 521 BC, after most other rebellions had been doused or sputtered out on their own, one last one flared to life. The place was Babylon, and the usurper, an ethnic Urartian named Araka, had taken the throne name of, yes, you guessed it, Nebuchadnezzar IV. Oh, and he also claimed to be another son of Nabonidus. Man, for someone who got no love when he was actually around, Nabonidus was really raking in the posthumous props. Anyway, Darius had had a long year. A very, very long year. And Babylon was on his absolute last nerve. 
The great king dispatched another trusted general, an original co-conspirator named Antophernes, to go forth and fight this Babylonian army, which does not declare itself to me. In short order, Antophernes marched on Babylon, fought the rebels, and retook the city, no doubt with another round of inside help. The rebel king and his followers were seized by Persian forces and crucified inside the city walls. While Darius was likely tempted to pull a full Sennacherib, destroy the city's temples and flood its streets, he settled for tearing down a portion of his defensive walls to discourage further rebellions. The tactic worked. It would be the last Babylonian revolt under Darius's reign as well as the last time the name Nebuchadnezzar would grace a Mesopotamian king. If the end of 521 BC sounds like a good time to pause, crack a beer, and reflect on your many victories, Darius is way ahead of you. Back when he'd crushed the army of Freortes, the great king had stared up at the sacred mountain of Behistun and thought to himself, you know what that cliffside needs? A little more Darius. In particular, a monumental stone inscription, in both text and reliefs, telling the full story of the great king's lineage, his triumph over the false Bardaya, and his ongoing war against the forces of evil and deception. Royal scribes and artisans began to reshape the mountainside in the summer of 521 BC. The final text, not finished until much later, would record events through the end of 519 BC, and, as a bonus, would do so in the newly created Persian script. The Behistun inscription is written as a first-person account by the great king himself. In it, he commonly invokes the name of Ahura Mazda, by whose grace he is king, and far more often than seems necessary, and treats the reader to believe what he's written and not hold it to be lies. Once it had reached its final form, the inscription was duly copied and published across the empire. So, was 520 BC the year of Darius takes a break? Sadly, no. If you thought Elam was a quirky retro-rebellion, try this one on for size. After being left, backwards and destitute, under the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Assyria had received a healthy infusion of capital and labor under the Persians. The region had quickly grown to be a major center of both agriculture and administration, and its soldiers were a mainstay of imperial forces. Since two generations had passed since the destruction of Nineveh, the Persians could be forgiven for believing that a resurgent Assyria might be a good thing. The name of the rebel leader of the new would-be Neo-Neo-Assyrian Empire has been lost to history. Let's just call him Asher X. But the danger he posed to Persian control of northern Mesopotamia was real. Details of the conflict are scarce, but it's known that the Assyrian rebellion was eventually put down through force of arms. I'm guessing from that point on, the Persians kept a closer eye on the funding of development projects for the region. Later that year, the great king's attention was drawn back to the empire's eastern frontiers. Scythians were bad enough, but the Scythians with the pointed cap... 
Well, at the very least, they needed to be taken down a hat size or two. Darius himself led Persian forces into their homeland, along the eastern shore of the Caspian Sea. But his campaign was frustrated when the nomads refused to line up and take a beating in a proper pitched battle. Annoyingly, and effectively, the pointed Capsidians spent months waging a guerrilla campaign against Darius's forces. By 519 BC, the great king finally managed to secure some decisive victories, capturing two of their leaders and, as he put it, smiting the Scythians excessively. In the end, the region was subjected to tribute, and Darius installed a hand-picked chief to rule the region in his name. But, of course, Scythian tribes and territories were numerous, extending all along the northern borders of the Persian Empire, from the Balkans to the Jaxartes River. Future conflicts with tribes living near the Black Sea would first draw Darius's eye to the strange and mysterious lands of the west, most significantly Greece. The same decade that had seen tumultuous changes in Persian leadership had witnessed a far more stable transition in Athens. Pisistratus, the great tyrant, had finally died in 527 BC. His third tyranny had lasted for nearly 20 years, time he'd used to keep his city strong, beautiful, and at peace. One of the most remarkable of his many legacies was a new public square at the foot of the Acropolis, with nine magnificent marble fountains supplying fresh water for the citizens of Athens. Another was the minting of the first Athenian coins, adorned with the image of Athena on one side and her owl on the other. No doubt benefiting from the tyrant's many mining interests, the coins were minted using the highest purity silver. Of all his legacies, the one he'd worked hardest to secure was passing down Athenian rule to his eldest sons, Hippias and Hipparchus. Though inheriting no formal title, the two continued to rule the city just as their father had done. Fortunately, Pisistratus had set them a compelling and benevolent example. In most areas, Hippias and Hipparchus strove to demonstrate a seamless continuity. In others, such as patronizing the arts and the construction of elaborate public monuments, the brothers even managed to kick things up a notch or two. The Temple of Olympian Zeus, whose ruins still stand today, was erected during this period. Hipparchus is also known to have invited the great Greek lyric poet Simonides of Chios to stay in the city. Simonides is best remembered for the later heroic ode he composed to the fallen Spartans of Thermopylae. There are various translations, but I always prefer Frank Miller's Bare Bones version. Go tell the Spartans, passerby, that here by Spartan law we lie. Speaking of which, in 520 BC, with Thermopylae still decades in the future, a new king ascended to the Spartan throne. While Cleomenes was eldest son of Anaxandrides II, he was also son of the late king's second wife, making his succession a less-than-clear-cut affair. His younger half-brothers by the king's first wife, Doreus, Leonidas, and Cleombritus, had clearly been the king's favorites. However, by the strict dictates of Spartan law, Cleomenes held the stronger claim. 
As obedient Spartan citizens, the three half-brothers refused to challenge the decision. Actually, while Doreus, or the Dorian, accepted the choice, he was sufficiently upset at being passed over that he decided to leave his home city for good. He asked the new king's permission to establish a Spartan colony on the Libyan coast, to the west of Cyrenaica. Cleomenes, happy to get rid of a potential rival, gave his blessing to the venture. The colony was founded in 515 BC, but Doreus had made the grave mistake of sighting it too close to the powerful city of Carthage. Three years later, combined Carthaginian and Libyan forces attacked the city and expelled the colonists. When Doreus led a second colonial expedition a few years later, this time to western Sicily, the response was even quicker. Combined Carthaginian and Lemian forces attacked almost immediately. Doreus and most of the leading figures of his expedition were killed. Of course, it was Doreus's younger brother, Leonidas, who would later succeed Cleomenes as Spartan king and earn eternal fame for his heroic defense of Thermopylae. Per their unique system of co-kingship, Cleomenes joined the aged king Ariston in ruling over Sparta. Though, even from the start, the new king was intent on charting a new course for the city. A few years earlier, the Spartans had been stung by yet another foreign debacle. Samian refugees had arrived at Sparta and Corinth with a compelling tale of betrayal. Their ruler, the tyrant Polycrates, had sent them to their deaths in Egypt, but they'd caught on to his plan, sailed back to Samos, and routed his fleet. If only they could get Spartan and Corinthian help, Samos would surely fall, and all the tyrants' treasures would be theirs for the sharing. Swayed by the prospect of an easy victory, both cities had dispatched forces to besiege the Samian capital. However, after the tyrants' defenses proved stiffer than advertised, the Spartans and Corinthians had lost faith in the venture and soon sailed back home. The lesson at least for Cleomenes, was simple. The Peloponnese was their stronghold. Any attempts at growth and conquest should come not through overseas ventures, but by expansion into mainland Greece. Argos had already been humbled, but there were other cities still strong enough to challenge Spartan dominance, including Corinth, Thebes, and, in particular, Athens. A clever strategist, Cleomenes decided to do whatever he could to sow discord among Sparta's potential rivals. The first opportunity came in 519 BC, when the city of Plataea sent emissaries pleading for Spartan protection against the Thebans. Cleomenes refused their request, but mentioned that, you know, you might check with Athens instead. The Plataeans took his advice and, with the approval of Hippias and Hipparchus, concluded a defensive alliance with Athens that freed Plataea from Theban domination. Upon hearing the news, the Theban army marched on Plataea. They were met there by an Athenian army dispatched by the tyrants. The Corinthians were brought in in an effort to peaceably resolve the situation. After weighing the various claims, Corinth convinced all parties to respect Plataea's wishes and accept their alliance with Athens. The Thebans, second-guessing the agreement they just made, attacked the Athenians anyway. 
The brief conflict resulted in a victory for Athens, who rolled back the Theban border to the river Asopus. Plataea would eventually repay her debt by sending hoplites to fight alongside the hard-pressed Athenians in the critical battle of Marathon. For Cleomenes, everything had gone according to plan. In one subtle stroke, he'd managed to confirm both Athenian military might and the ease with which rival Peleus could be set against one another. Even better, he'd done so without committing a single hoplite. Spartan military strength, skill, and total commitment to victory could be prudently reserved until the time was right. Meanwhile, Cleomenes would continue to probe the defenses of potential rivals to look for signs of weakness. Above all, he'd remain vigilant for any opportunity to undermine Athenian power. In the end, one way or the other, all of Greece would come to accept the inevitability of Spartan rule. Next episode, we reconnect with some old friends as Darius's eastern ambitions bring him into military conflict with the civilizations of Vedic India. The co-tyranny of Hippias and Hipparchus is brought to a bloody end, and we'll watch as Persian power is first projected from Asia into Europe, setting the stage for the defining conflict of the classical age. All this next time on The Ancient World.